Hey everyone, welcome to Asian Tech Leaders, the podcast where we interview some of the most interesting and inspiring Asian CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. I'm your host, Justin Pang, and I'm on a mission to share the stories of Asian tech leaders to help guide your personal and professional life. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thomas Park is a leader in global venture capital and is a partner at the BDC Deep Tech Fund. He's also the co-founder of the Asian Canadian Ventures Collective. Tom has been at the BDC since 2017, and he currently leads a $200 million venture capital fund that invests in Canadian startups developing cutting-edge technology, including quantum computers. Previously, Tom served over five years at the Gates Foundation and McKinsey & Company, where he had the opportunity to oversee numerous special projects across both the public and private sector. For the first eight years of his career, Tom put his law degree to good use as a consultant to the ICC, also known as The Hague, and the United Nations Khmer Rouge Tribunal in Cambodia. Tom is a graduate of the Dartmouth College Tuck School of Business, Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and McGill University. He currently sits on a number of boards at McGill, Ryerson University, and he's also the chair of the BAMP Forum. In 2022, Tom co-founded the Asian Canadian Venture Collective that helps bring together Canadians of Asian heritage working in tech. In this episode, you'll learn how Tom's upbringing as the only minority in his neighborhood made him much more resilient and resourceful. You'll also learn about the Christmas Day revelation that motivated Tom to leave his early success in corporate law. And finally, what Tom thinks about the Gen AI hype cycle and where we're at right now. Hope you enjoy this episode and let's get started. Hey, Tom, how are you doing? Good. Good. It's good to be back in uh, Toronto. Yes, yes. What brings you to this part of Canada? What did you uh, tell our listeners? Yeah, so Collision Week, so a lot going on here. So Collision's always a lot of fun, but uh, it's a bunch of side events. We're just hosting a breakfast with some uh, uh, some corporates who are interested about the uh, about the tech sector. So uh, yeah, I'm just here in the BDC's Toronto office. So uh, oh, yeah. Great. You're here on a smoky day too, right? We're getting some of the smoke from the uh, wildfires, I think, up in Quebec. So, oh yeah, Ottawa is even worse. I live in. Oh, we moved like uh, to Ottawa a year ago. We should get into that why in the podcast later. But uh, yeah, <laughs> Ottawa is even worse. Oh <laughs> so really? Smoke. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's really bad in Ottawa. Wow. Just when we thought we were done wearing masks, now we have to break them out, but for another reason. So <laughs> yeah, now we have to wear masks outside. No longer inside. Now it's outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, at, on the topic of conferences and tech, right? Um, I heard that AI is really big this year. Is that what you're hearing too, Tom? <laughs> yes, AI is very big. It's it's funny, Justin. We thought the hype cycle from a few years ago just died, and everybody just focused on real applications. And yeah. now these LLMs that, by the way, that everybody's been in the who's been working on this for been aware of this for years. All of a sudden, that's the trend right now, and the it's just, uh, yeah, I think that, well, I think in a year or so, uh, the hype cycle will go back, back to normal. Okay. Well, that, that's what I wanted to get your opinion on before we touch on your personal background and your origin story, which is how much of this is hype versus real, right? I feel like as, a, as somebody who's been in tech for 10 years, it's sometimes hard to tell, right? Is this, yeah. you know, we went through the Web3 crypto thing a couple of years ago and AR and VR and now 
AR and VR might be back now that Apple has a Vision Pro. So what's your personal uh, take on how much of this generative AI uh, trend is real versus uh, flash in the pen? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, a, you know, bubbles are normal in a, in a, uh, in a tech ecosystem or in, the, in, in an industry lifecycle. That's normal. Bubbles just means everybody trying to find a business model to commercialize a particular technology. And it just takes a lot of different experiments to kind of land on a few, right? Like, look at Google. There were plenty of other search engines. I'm old enough to remember Netscape. And then mm -hmm. it was Google, and it remains Google after all of these years. Um, I think most likely the people will wrap their heads around the fact that, one, you can't trust these LLMs. The output, mm -hmm. just like ChatGPT, even they're saying you can't trust it. I think it'll be a while before they find a specific application uh, mm -hmm. and such. I think so. Yeah, I think a lot of the hype will go down when they see the limitation of the technology. I can see the value being added on two ends. One is that people find specific use cases that more enhances human judgment than replaces humans. And two, those who are in the cloud and in the computation space. I don't think people realize, uh, you would know this, Justin, because uh, uh, you're one of the senior folks at Google, that 20 to 40% of the revenue generated by with these LLM folks just go to computation costs. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. and that's not going down anytime soon. So, I mean, it costs like hundreds of millions to train ChatGPT. Uh, so that's that's what I would say. I think uh, a lot of hype will go down, but uh, we'll start seeing like very interesting applications mm -hmm. later on. But you're starting to see the capital flow to this, right? Even even if we can take a step back and be like, well, this might be peak, but you're still seeing capital flow into yes. AI startups, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Especially at the seed, uh, it's interesting. It's like this con uh, um, uh, as conjunction. If I can mm -hmm. use the Witcher terminology, uh, the conjunction between uh, a correction in the market where everybody starts going seed and write smaller checks, and this hype of Gen AI where a lot of the startups are at this seed level, and so the valuations are just kids going up. So valuations are down in a lot of other sectors, right. like semiconductors and such, but not not here. So it's been it's a bit of a fight with some of the with some of the other funds there, which forces us to continue to articulate why would an entrepreneur take money from Tom? And I gotta right. articulate this is why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there is a news last week that Databricks is acquiring this Gen AI startup Mosaic ML for 1.3 billion, and they have 60 people, I think, on on their team. So yeah, the valuations that we're seeing are bananas. But are, I guess maybe. The bull market is starting in like, the equity. I still market. remember that's similar to Google's acquisition of YouTube. I think it was like a similar right. valuation. Right. You think about it, like it was like a billion. I forgot what it was. Yeah. That, yeah. that was a steal if you think about YouTube today. Oh yeah. It's crazy, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or WhatsApp what or the WhatsApp acquisition, right? Which that's crazy. Is crazy. So people thought it was a big deal. Oh, they overpaid and now you see, wow. I guess not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So time will tell, right? Um, so yeah, I kind of want to kind of touch on your origin story, right, Tom? I think your background is so fascinating and diverse, and I, I'm really excited about the conversation today because you're not your typical tech executive background, right? You have had a very diverse and uh, interesting uh, background and career, which I love, and I'm sure it adds to the nuance and the perspective you bring to uh, your work today. But why don't you talk a little bit more about your very early upbringings, where you're born, and what your childhood was like. Yeah, 
Um, you know, that's such a interesting question when you ask Asians uh, who are born like uh, uh, right because it's there's they, they always try to mask it a bit because it was it's right. always been complicated feelings. So my parents immigrated to Montreal and the Quebec in the seventies. So I grew up Justin in a place where everyone belonged to a minority group. So white francophones, white anglophones, everybody belonged to a minority group, and they felt they were in a minority group, right? So uh, one, and two, I grew up. I would, I would, I would probably call blue collar Quebec. So my parents mm. lived in a place called Longueuil, which is just south shore of Montreal, which is, uh, which is, I would, I would call it the uh, the New Jersey of Quebec, right? <laughs> Connotations. Um, <laughs> so I was born there in a very francophone, uh, French-speaking neighborhood. The plus side, I would say, is I got to know Quebec very well, and I love Quebec. Uh, but there was a lot of challenges, I would definitely say. And I think one of them is, I think as when you're a Asian-Canadian or Asian-American, um, and you're first generation, so I was born here, my parents immigrated here a few, just a few years before I was born, your parents can't help you as much as mm -hmm. people who didn't immigrate. They they don't know how the job market works. They don't know really how the school system works. They don't really know anything, right? And, you know, they just immigrated. We ran a uh, convenience store, so they're working all the time to try to survive. So you got to kind of teach yourself. And mm -hmm. I feel like I'm still learning to navigate, even after all of these years, how to navigate uh, society here. Um, and that's the first thing. Uh, I would say the second thing, it's weird. I would say Toni Morrison, one of my favorite writers, said the problem with discrimination or racism, it's it's the mental burden for anybody of color because you're, it's, you're always wondering, did that Starbucks barista cut me off while I'm talking because of the way I look? Mm -hmm. Is the way the bus driver acted like it's because the way I look? It, it, it is a constant noise. And I would say that noise was quite loud when I was growing up, especially having grown up in three referenda in Quebec. Mm. I was too young to really know. Charlottetown, then 95. We had our neighbors essentially tell us once they win, uh, we were no longer welcomed in the neighborhood. Wow. <laughs> it was crazy times. It was just like, I can't believe people, people, people did that. And that was normal. Mm. So... Yeah, so that's uh, kind of the milieu I grew up in. Were you one of the few Asians in your community, or were there yeah, others as well? I still don't know why my parents decided to move in that neighborhood because <laughs> there was no other really immigrants. Like, no, that's well, what they needed. They needed a convenience store, right? That's probably the <laughs> supply and demand. Well, it was like really cheap property, okay. cheap. Uh, yeah, I guess so. They needed a community. But at, at, at a young age, you you recognize like, hey, you know what? I look different. My last name's different. Eat different food, presumably. Um, but was that very clear early on that you were a quote-unquote outsider, even though you were in a community with other types of minorities, but not necessarily Asian minorities? I in fact, It was even worse. There was... I can't think of any other minority group in my neighborhood. Mm. It was very, I would say, definitely Quebecois. At the time, it was like Pierlen or Quebecois de Souche, very white Quebecois, uh, lower middle class, I would say working class uh, neighborhood. Um, and so right away, whether I had a choice, like they would just say, you're Chinese mm. or the Chinois, like that was, that was it. It's right. I still get triggered. When I hear the the syllable 
right? If I mm. hear Quebecer, are they gonna are they gonna say something negative about Chinois? Right, mm -hmm. I still get triggered a bit when I hear just even that syllable. Like, no, je je cherche quelque chose. Like, I, mm -hmm. I just, I just get a bit triggered. I, I, I do hold my breath a bit. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was, um, it was certainly had its challenges. Mm -hmm. So growing up, what were? Oh, sorry, uh, Justin. Yeah. Oh, so, pardon me. Uh, my question was, when you're growing up, so what did you like to do? What were what sparked your curiosity, um, and what what did your kind of group of friends look like, and what did they like to do as well? My only group of friends was I had gone to this uh, public elementary school out in another suburb that was much more diverse. So I was bused in twenty minutes to get to school, but mm -hmm. a school bus would pick me up. And so uh, the only friends I would have were I get school, like in the neighborhood. I felt so unwelcome mm. at the soccer games or this event or that, that uh, I just stayed home. Mm -hmm. uh, so in fact, I never felt fully safe. It was interesting because I had, it's clear you can hear my accent uh, that I had gone to schooling in the English system. So in a lot of ways, I was a double minority. So mm -hmm. I was a visible minority, and then I was an Anglophone minority, even though I wasn't really part of the, the traditional Montreal, Quebec, Anglophone community, which is very white at the time. Um, and so I just I just couldn't feel comfortable ever outside my home. Mm. So I would do solitary uh, events. I would, uh, I would ride a bike, uh, walk around a lot, uh, but uh, I never felt, I never felt welcome or safe in a lot of spaces. Mm. Uh, uh, actually growing up. Mm. And did you end up spending time helping your parents with the store or? I did, yeah. Do? Yeah, so I would go there and it has its own dynamics, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, my parents, my dad was born in the late 30s in Korea. So, uh, and so that is a very different set of values. Grew up in Japanese occupied Korea, two well, through two of the worst wars. And so they have a, they have a, my wife was shocked when they when she met them because they were like from a Korea from the 50s, she said, mm -hmm. how they behaved. And I was a kid then, so we actually have a lot of tension, just like a lot of immigrant families within the families, but like not a lot of communication and such. So, mm -hmm. uh, so and you, you don't understand how things work and it just, it gets complicated. Mm -hmm. That's the most diplomatic way I would say. So it's a lot of ways that, I think a big theme of my life, I would say, is trying to find a home. Because mm -hmm. it's been, that's why you see I, I've traveled quite a bit because I'm trying to find a home somewhere. Right. Right. And we'll, we'll touch on that theme later, right? Which is the sense of belonging, right? Which is another way to say looking for a home, right? And I feel very similar. And like my tra family traveled a lot. We moved quite a bit when I was younger. And on the upside, that has allowed me to, be very adaptable, have a very high level of curiosity, and also find commonalities, right, in whatever situation or whatever group I'm in. But there are also downsides to that as well, right, which is I, sometimes I can't sit still. Right? <laughs> so um, I guess before we kind of uh, shift gears, can you talk a little bit more about what mom and dad were like, right? You, you talked about um, 
your dad growing up in in the late 30s and 40s in Korea but what was he like you know what were one or two characteristics about uh each of your parents that you're interested in sharing you know my mom used to say how smart my dad was and he's very mm. accomplished um he's very smart but it's really I realized my mom's actually the intellectual side mm. she's the one that would read war and peace I just realized it's just kind of just recently mm-hmm. <laughs> these incredibly dense books in Korean um uh i would say definitely think of sort of like the stereotype almost a stereotype of the first immigration first generation immigrating to canada in the 70s 60s and 70s so uh they don't speak the language very well and this is a francophone province uh they work crazily hard and that's actually something i had to deprogram myself when i was working in an office because they would only take two days off a year. That was just <laughs> yep. Christmas, I remember, and New Year's Day. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's it. They would, because they, we're running a business. So like, if they're off on vacation, no one's generating revenue. Yep. Uh, uh, they worked incredibly hard. They had very high expectations, almost like, you know, you talk about the tiger mom, like think of that, <laughs> but way more intense, like way more intense. So mm-hmm. here's an anecdote. Um, I was actually a very good golfer mm. uh, when I was a kid. Uh, a very good golfer. Like, oh, I'm a big, I'm a big guy. I'm like, you've met me. I'm six three, uh, north, almost two hundred fifty pounds, right? So I'm not as, so I'm about the same size now as I was in high school. So uh, when I was fifteen, I would, I don't know if you play golf. I used to hit balls yeah. above the fence at the driving range. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> just naturally 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 so they would ask me like, play oh, with wow. the irons just hit the balls with the irons because yeah, yeah, yeah. wow but i was playing with my dad constantly my dad saw this he wanted me to excel but just the way like i would play 18 holes uh with him and then we would hit another 1500 balls at the driving range after <laughs> like, constantly constantly yeah so by the point where you know i was asked it was going to be sponsored and going competition i just quit because i was so burnt oh, out burnt after out. three years so I, I even today i can't play golf wow so uh i can't play golf i get i get really anxious i get like annoyed and i can see every single fault i yeah. do even before i walk up to the ball yeah. um uh so that's i would say um, it was like they're coming from a place of love but it was so intense, intense. uh the way they mm-hmm. did it and how they are and what's funny because i had a lot of resentment then i went to korea met his you know my father's family and i just realized he's the easygoing one <laughs> he's the one uh-huh. that went you know the woke dad compared to <laughs> going, to, going to canada and yeah yeah, wow. like wow, he—they're way more intense. I didn't realize that. It just, uh, uh, but going from that generation, there was a generation that totally they just didn't know how to relax. There was no yeah. like everything was. No, it was, it was a make or break. Yeah, yeah, intense survival, right? But a lot of grit. Very different from today, which is, hey, I don't want to go back to the office three days a week, or at all, right? And I think when we look back at, especially the immigrant story and some of our parents and that generation of like they didn't have a choice i mean to your point if they didn't show up they didn't get paid so <laughs> there's never a, a time to relax right so yeah it was interesting when i first got my first job in an office 
it, I didn't perform well because I just got this constant feedback. You might get fired. You might get fired any day now. Yeah. <laughs> and when you're constantly in a state of anxiety, I was in law. Like, okay, I gotta yeah. get out of here. Wow. So, how did that upbringing and just kind of the the lens and expectations of your parents lead you to decide to study law in undergrad? Can you kind of connect the dots between that part of your life and what you aspired to do with your career? I think for me. Um, I think for me, one is that my parents uh, uh, create, I think my parents took the, they read about a lot about the Kennedy family. To them, mm -hmm. the Kennedys were everything. And one of the things they took away was they set up very intense competition amongst the children. Uh, and so that has, which is the case for a lot of uh, Asian families. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I was set up to go to medical school. Uh, and I didn't want to go to medical school. And so the other option was, well, then I guess you're going to be homeless. Right? <laughs> That's how they painted it, right? So I, I actually wanted to go study political science and international relations. I was really into that. And, but I ended up going, I even did my pre-med qualifications. Okay. Um, I ended up going to law school. That was the other alternative. So I got, that was the compromise was to go to law school. So my marks were high enough. Essentially, I didn't need to have an undergraduate degree to go to McGill. Uh, mm -hmm. So I performed well, but it wasn't medical school. Mm. But academically, you were strong, right? So you had options, but ultimately, you studied law because you were interested in that field more so than um, medicine or a more scientific. Yeah, uh, I look back, I probably should have gone into the regular, regular <laughs> undergraduate uh, political science uh, program. I think back to right. And I think that's something how I raise my kid. If, this, if you're interested in something, if you're showing promise, just double down on that. Mm -hmm. So while you're in law school, did you have a clear sense of what you wanted to do after? I had like, did no you idea what I wanted to do. Uh, I took a lot of corporate law classes because I thought that was the expected, even though my heart was in something else. Uh, yeah. And that's why I did my article in McCarthy Tetro. So I got the tier one firm and, uh, and I was just like, this is not me. This is not mm. me at all. And that's why I had left. Hmm. And then during, was this during undergrad or after? Sorry, after, sorry. I just uh, finished the undergrad. Uh, that was my undergrad. Uh, law was yeah. my undergrad. And right. uh, I went to write the Quebec Bar. And then I worked at McCarthy Tetro, a great firm, phenomenal people. But this wasn't for me. It just, I right. worked on a number of great transactions. And like, this isn't for me at all. Okay. And then what was the, the career, hypothesis, career hypothesis then of what you wanted to do? Because I realized I was working there on Christmas Day, right? So yeah. that's the way of a corporate lawyer. I was there Christmas Day, New Year's Day, working uh, at the office. And then I realized, wow, if I slog away for like this for the next eight years, I'll just move down five doors from where I am right now to a slightly mm. bigger office, but I'm there, right? That's what I'll be. And this is not, and this is not what I want. This is so, not what I wanted. So then did you know what you wanted at the time or did you know what you didn't want? And then I think you set up on a journey to figure that out. I think, you know, we use a language now, but I sense at the time mm. uh, that my parents were still suffering from a lot of PTSD from what they had gone through. Just I imagine with your family. Mm -hmm. And I really thought that was so unfair because they've done nothing. They've done nothing to have gone to endure that kind of life. Mm -hmm. So something about getting into human rights law, getting to just addressing these humanitarian issues, 
Samantha Power just wrote her book, uh, Problem from Hell, which was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. That was really moving for me. Uh, so that's when I decided to go become a, uh, go to work uh, internationally. Mm -hmm. So is this where you ended up working at the Hague? As that's a right. I was at, yeah, and I spent several uh, years working at the International Criminal Court uh, in the Hague. I worked in the former Yugoslavia, so I was in uh, Kosovo, uh, mm -hmm. working there, and then I was in Cambodia as well, too, mm -hmm. the Khmer Rouge uh, prosecution team. Wow. So how did that, you know, as a somebody in their early 20s who grew up in or were raised in, you know, a small city in, in Canada, how did those global experiences shape who you are today? Like, what were some of the main takeaways from that part of your life? I would say three things. So first, it got me away from my family to give me space to grow up. Mm -hmm. uh, and I yeah. think that's something if any other Asian persons, they just the families can get very intense to create that space. I was the kind of guy that used to study till 11 p.m. at the library every night, just so I would wait for my parents to go to bed, my family to go to bed. And then when I get home, it would be peaceful. I'm sure, right. you, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that experience. Uh, I would say the second thing is that this all my experience, it gave me a spike in trying to navigate uh, communities where there's a lot of tension. Mm. Uh, or, oh, avoid this emotional minefield, avoid that political minefield. It gave me a spike in navigating these things because I can sense it because I grew up in, in the Quebec referendum. I remember neighbors hating each other and people like, if mm. you think back, it's so stupid, right? Everything is stupid. These, it's not worth it. Um, uh, and uh, so that gave, that was another spike. And I think the third thing fundamentally came to the understanding, my perspective about humans, that we're all essentially the same. Mm. And we may see things there culturally but like to say that this ethnic group are like this or that ethnic group are like that, that's just, it's not, it's not valid. I, mm -hmm. I'm not romanticizing people. People could be just as cruel and, and unjust to other people. Uh, uh, that's, I've seen that as well too. It just, we're fundamentally, you know, we share, we do share a common like nature and there was a common humanity and which was, which has helped me a lot. Totally. Yeah. Great, great lessons. I think on the second point, which is bridging the divide or finding common ground or being a peacemaker or whatever label you want to give it, how do you kind of, you know, as we navigate the world and presumably pass things on to the next generation, what has been a helpful mental model to both see every side of the coin, but also make sure that you have something that you believe in, right, and have conviction? and passion, but not necessarily use that as a way to to divide uh, yourself from another part of the community. And yeah, yeah. We can take any example, right? Political, it could be all the hot button lightning rod issues in the world. But I, any I, anything that has worked for you to kind of balance that? I still remember, you know, to this day, um, uh, Christmas, Christmas is my favorite holiday. Whether you're Christian mm -hmm. or not, I just love Christmas. Uh, uh, that's my favorite holiday, but it's also an anxious period uh, mm. for me because what had happened, I still remember a period like in the 90s in Quebec was a rough period. Like unemployment was like 12% in Quebec. The Canadian dollar was 60 cents. It was terrible. Um, and so periodically we get, my dad would get a phone call on Christmas day that, hey, your front window is broken and your store has been looted, right? 
yeah. so I remember going, you know, my dad talking to the police. And that that moment, it's a unique, it's an interesting dynamic, right? It's Christmas Day. The police officers were white Francophone Quebecois, right? And there's my dad, right? Uh, and just trying to, I had to navigate a few things, right? I had to make sure my dad didn't lose his temper and getting angry and taking it out on the police officers. Mm -hmm. I also had to think about how do I get these police officers who have to work on their day to sympathize with us, right? So they're actually going to do something for us rather than just check some boxes. I checked in, no more, and then they just leave us and such. I had to think yeah. about navigating these things. And so because kids in these situations are often the translator, mm -hmm. uh, the translator and the mediator. So that one experience among others, right, trying to keep bridging these divides, that helped in a lot of a lot of places where we're helping to reframe reframe mm -hmm. these things, thinking through that that helped me a lot. I think these things because those kinds of incidents happened so many times when I was young that I just right. had recognition to sense where the tension might be. Totally, and I'm sure you see it in your day to day job too, right? Or even in our home lives, right? There's always two different points of view, and we all need to unify around some commonality. So. You're using those skills every day, I'm sure. <laughs> every day. <laughs> every day. Um, so then after uh, working and living abroad in a, in a few countries, as you mentioned, uh, you ended up going back to school. Uh, so share a little bit more about that decision. Um, and then I would love to hear a little bit more about your experience at uh, HKS and what your career ambitions were at the time. while you're Yeah, so um, at the time, I had realized after talking to so many people that had survived, uh, I've met in my old job, I met so many interesting people uh, who probably did pretty horrific things to survive, um, mm -hmm. uh, who were, underwent, you know, I just remember in Cambodia, I was walking with my friend, he says, oh, Tom, you see that? That used to be a prison. That's where my sister was killed, mm -hmm. you know, back in the 70s. It was just, it was just like, shocking we just kept walking and it was just oh matter of fact right um and i also learned not to complain about a lot of stuff in my experience um <laughs> i would say um i gone one it was just that you know this is the past i want to do work on a shifting career and on doing something in the future two i want mm -hmm. to do something more in the private sector working in business because mm -hmm. it was interesting justin after all of these wars or every horrific things that happen what people did is they all want to start a business they all mm. wanted to start a business. They all wanted to start a business, go into business, think of a market because they just want to move on and focus on helping their family. And I saw the power of what the market could do, right? Because they, they didn't want handouts. They just wanted their own like thing that they just move forward. Um, and so I want to study that as well too. And I grew up in the business, and uh, and so that's what. And I also want to study in the U.S. as well too. Because uh, I had never spent any hardly any time at that point in the U.S. except for maybe a few days on vacation or a conference and such. So that's why I decided to go to Harvard. Was also did a dual program at uh, Dartmouth. Uh, it was quite game changing. I lost a hundred pounds. Oh wow! I was, like, I was severely obese after this work. I guess I didn't realize. I kept. I guess that was my way of coping with dealing with all the emotional oh, stuff. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I was like north of three. I know it was heavier than three fifty because the scale. The North American scale can go Max up to 350. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was crazy. Yeah, I think I was like 366. How did you, old. if you don't mind me asking, what? how did you lose it? What were the key activities or habits that helped you change? 
Well, I, I'm pretty confident you were never morbidly obese. But if you were, you would realize the first 50 is actually not hard because you just do something. <laughs> something. Like uh, cut something out of your diet or start moving a bit more. Yeah, yeah. So essentially yeah. Oh, wow. I was with a bunch of students at school and I realized not only were they studying hard where I was at, but they also had families to support while studying. Uh -huh. And I'm like, well, what's my excuse? Um, and um, and also I uh, and I had my own space to kind of breathe. And and uh, in, in the U.S., I was in a much more multicultural city. Yeah. Uh, and so I can go to the gym. I started going to the gym regularly. I started learning about nutrition. What's interesting? You go to Asian families. We never talk about nutrition. They always talk about. Oh, you're gaining weight, losing weight, and you should eat. But no one ever says, hey, you should have this amount of carbs, <laughs> this amount of protein. Yeah. You're either too fat or too skinny. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, and so uh, that's essentially that's it. I gone, I gone down. So I, I actually spent the time to slay three demons during that time. I always thought mm -hmm. I, I use this time to slay three demons. One was to get a job in a private company and outside uh, the government. Uh, so I did that at McKinsey. Two, uh, get into shape. That was a big thing, get into shape. And then the third demon was I'm going to actually go to Korea. Because at that point in my late 20s, I had never actually spent any time in Korea. And I had oh, a wow. choice where I can be one of those people of Korean heritage that actually never goes to Korea, that kind of embraces their identity, but it's, you know, they mm -hmm. don't have to. And they, I respect that. Or is this something I'm actually going to explore? Mm. And so I signed up to do an exchange in my last year at B school to go to Korea in my last semester. And that was extremely stressful. <laughs> extremely stressful. Oh my God. How's your Korean first off? Is it was it passable? So when I landed in Korea, <laughs> I was introduced to the class by the assistant dean. She goes, This is this is Thomas. And he doesn't speak a single word of Korean, and he's Korean. So, like, worst-case scenario of introduction, like, oh, my God, I'm a fake Korean. I'm a fake Asian. Yeah, now banana. all these Koreans are going to just crap on me. <laughs> well, I'm all here. I'll be isolated. I knew I should have gone to France on exchange. <laughs> um, uh, I worked out seven days a week. I even thought about, like, three weeks before the exchange to just cancel. I was so anxious. And then when I got there and when I tried, I realized a few things. One, uh, the immigrant communities, I guess, of our insecurity are so into making sure reinforcing our identity. They don't have that issue in Korea. They, they don't normally care, right? But more importantly, they said, oh, here's a Korean. And they, they had a better understanding than the Koreans here. He was born overseas. There's no way he would understand anything about us. He probably had hardly any Korean friends, and he's trying to learn his heritage. We respect that. Not a lot of Asian uh, cultures accept that. Koreans are yeah. very open to that. Mm. So I had a fantastic time when I was in Korea. And I'm taking Korean. I took Korean lessons. I continue to take Korean lessons. So it's passable. I'm very good in restaurants. I would say I'm very comfortable in taxis and in restaurants right now. <laughs> and did your family cook Korean food a lot growing up? Like, is that what you ate at home? Yes and no. I didn't eat okay. any of the spicy stuff until I didn't eat kimchi. I didn't eat any of the hot stuff uh, until I went to Cambodia. And mm. then I started, I started dating uh, a Korean woman. 
And she says, hey, let's go for a Korean meal. Hey, that's what Koreans do. Yeah, sure. And she ordered like the opposite of what I would order. And I said, like, so, and I gave my, I had a choice. Unless I want to, if I want to keep hanging out with her, I better eat this and say it's delicious. And I ate this. It was delicious. I wasted all this. So, what, what's your go to? If you have to have one last meal, like Korean meal, what would you order? Let's if assume I, it's a dinner. Oh, I would probably order the kimchi stew. Oh, kimchi jjigae. Oh, very good. Is, I still think the stews are the heart and soul of Korean totally. cuisine. You can't, be, you can't beat it, right? And I, the only time I went to Korea was uh, in December, like in on the month of December. And mm. one of my favorite memories is when you're walking outside in the streets, you see all the steam on the windows, right? Because they're yes. barbecue stews all stewing. And in the Korean barbecue place that we went to, they would give us a big plastic garbage bag to put our clothes in, so that it didn't like absorb the smoke and smell. So I agree that. <laughs> The stew and barbecue culture in, in Korea is second to none. Exactly. So again, you know, we're not going to cover your every single bit of your career because it's a, a long and illustrious one. Um, but you did spend five years at McKinsey, right? Part of that was yes. also at the Gates Foundation, which must have been a great experience. But um, what were some of the best lessons or tools you gained from working in consulting, right? That's what a lot of younger folks are thinking, right? Maybe wetting their teeth, um, spending a couple of years in consulting, building some skills, but what did you take away from it other than answering every question with three points? Yeah, the <laughs> problem is I'm a two point guy. I struggle oh, with three points. You gotta I'm add a, the third one. I don't, I, I struggle. I was, it's, everything's always two points. I, I, that's why I, that's why I sucked in the long run. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so uh, one thing was getting to the point really fast. <laughs> so that helped a lot. It's just like, hey, yeah. I did this and I did this and I did this. Nobody cares. What are the, why should I care? What What did yeah. you learn? Then I'll ask later. I would say the, the second thing was um, how to be really efficient in terms of productivity. Because we're mm -hmm. very small teams constantly uh, and such. And I think the third thing was how to navigate uh, uh, organizations. Like, uh, you know, you're at a big company, and so big companies have their own culture. They got their own office politics, and it's hard to get people aligned. That was really insightful. And your time at McKinsey, was that based out of Canada, like in Montreal? Yeah, I was, technically in, the the Mon Foundation? Yeah, I was yeah. technically in the Montreal office, but I was like all over the place. I was in like West Africa. Oh, wow. uh, I was on projects where being a large Asian guy uh, was actually Asian Canadian guy who could speak French was a big advantage. Oh, wow. Like, so I was in Francophone, West Africa. I was like in... <laughs> but it must have been, you know, I lived in East Africa, but it must have been such a eye-opening experience for the locals. Like, what? Oh, my, they, they went they, nuts. They would call, oh, Jackie Chan? They would call me Jackie Chan and then... No. I'm sure they would see you and not expect you to speak French as well. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, <laughs> first. I was like Mr. McKinsey, and then I was, uh, then I was Mr. Because they thought that was my name, and then I was like Mr. Le Grand Chinois. So every <laughs> it's like Mr. Le Grand uh, Chinois. Even in Morocco, <laughs> Mr. Le Grand. I, like, 
<laughs> just everywhere I went. Even in Senegal, I got known it. Oh, oui, oui. C'est le monsieur le grand chinois. <laughs> Il va venir. So, <laughs> he's coming. And you're not going to you're not correcting them that you're Korean, actually. Uh, just, just like you know, let it pass. <laughs> I let it pass. Whatever they get it. They love Korea. They you know they didn't. They, it was so interesting. Because they yeah. see the six foot three guy speaking French with a very heavy Quebec accent. Right, right. They were just so, disarmed a lot. <laughs> it's led to great stories, I'm sure, and fun yeah. interactions, right? I'll never forget some of the stories I had. Um, curious to know, too, early in your career, you made the decision to be based out of Canada. How easy or hard was that decision? Um, because, especially after having the opportunity to work abroad, study abroad, and I felt this for for myself. Sometimes it feels like, well, Canada is actually quite small. So, curious to know your thinking of when you decided to relocate and center your career around Canada, how that decision was made. Yeah. So I had got married uh, uh, to my wife, who's Korean Korean, and we we're living in Seattle. And Seattle is great. Mm -hmm. You don't pay any state tax, so you're making way more money. Yeah. But then I would see these shanty towns everywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that was their answer for the homelessness because there's no taxes. So let's let them build their camps here. And that was the progressive cause. It's like, are you nuts? Uh, this is crazy. Um, uh, back in Canada, we'd build shelters. You know, if we need more money, we just increase the taxes or whatever. And people yeah. people don't we have much higher taxation. And you can see the dramatic difference between Vancouver and Seattle. And that's why we moved back. That's why we mm -hmm. moved back to Quebec. Which has the opposite tax philosophy, which is the highest tax jurisdiction in North America, because mm -hmm. this is the values. Like you didn't have these large encampments of these poor homeless people uh, yeah. with children. It was crazy, and that's what uh, caused us to go back. Mm. Any regrets, or like, do you ever think of like, well, maybe should live somewhere else with a lower tax rate and better weather? Or are you guys quite? I happy think with, with the surge of violence, especially against Asians. That's yeah. happening uh, in all these places. Uh, uh, no, we don't regret what it did happen. Justin, I mentioned it earlier. We just moved to Ottawa, so Montreal is my hometown. Mm -hmm. I love Montreal, uh, despite all the challenges. I still think it's you know compared to everything I see with the best city to live in. During COVID, my wife was attacked twice while heavily really? pregnant. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. Uh, like it just uh, I don't know. COVID. COVID really really brought out the worst in people especially mm -hmm. against uh and and so she no longer felt safe so that's why we move in, we moved to ottawa a year and a half ago mm -hmm. um, she loves ottawa uh it's sad because i love montreal and she can see it hurts a lot but it it hurts me even more to see her unsafe because i didn't debate i didn't debate the decision she goes i don't want to live here anymore I said, okay i just said i don't want to move to toronto yeah. uh I'm from Montreal, and I just don't want to <laughs> rival city. Rival city, can't and we can't afford Vancouver. Uh, so uh, if we're going to go to Vancouver, just might as well move to New York City. It's the same yeah. cost. So yeah. that's how we ended up in Ottawa. Oh, great, great. And um, just last couple of questions to wrap things up is, you know, now that you're in the venture capital space, I'm curious to know what is it like being in a, a visible minority there? Is it much more diverse than? Um, some of the other industries you've been in or is it I think are you still seeing some challenges you know i would say it's diverse yes i would also say but um i would say you know there's lots of asians i think i was talking to casper wong he said like almost 20 to 30 percent of the workforce is asian but less than two percent yeah. are asian senior leaders yeah. um 
And so that's why I helped create the Asian Canadian Ventures Collective. Uh, you know, you're involved, a lot of great senior leaders are involved to help out the community. Uh, and so biodiversity, yes, but not the right mix. And the unfortunate thing is that Asians are not prioritized in a lot of diversity programs. Mm. They're just not. So, which is fine because we actually have enough in our community where if we, at least after COVID, there isn't a growing Asian Canadian identity and we can leverage our community to help each other. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and that, that stat that you mentioned, I also see it in Google's public reports on diversity, which is um, I think 40% of the US workforce identifies as Asian, but there's a, a stark drop to maybe 25% in once it goes to leadership positions. So there's that That's delta. Right. Curious to know your perspective on that, which is how much of it do you think is cultural? So some of the potential conflicts between you know traditional Asian values and quote unquote moving up the corporate ladder uh, versus some other factor? Um, Great other, question. Uh, hypothesis? I think it's 50-50. A lot of, I think, I think, the, I think the, the problem with a lot of Asian Canadians or Asian Americans that they kind of blame too much on ourselves and our values, mm -hmm. right? Because I would say no one can outwork us. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I would say the second thing, yeah, there are certain things. It's okay if someone's yelling at you and whatever decision you make is displeases them. And that's mm -hmm. hard for Asians to accept that. And they think it's okay, right? It's okay yeah. to make tough calls and get people to be angry at you. Uh, at the same time, uh, I don't, I think like our experiences and such about discrimination are minimized, even though mm -hmm. they're very real. I would say I understand because it doesn't fit into the narrative for other communities, uh, but we have our own unique challenges that are just as important, but it's not that nuance. It's just they can't wrap their head around it. Yeah, uh, which can lead. We can have another discussion why I think a lot of Asian Americans are voting, are planning to vote Republican increasingly, mm -hmm. and the Republicans are seeing that. It's interesting. Governor DeSantis, you know, the Florida governor, he's canceling all of these like uh, specific history uh, uh, of particular groups of so Black History, Latina History. Uh, I don't know about at least Black History Month and such, but not Asian American Pacific Islander <laughs> heritage history out of the curriculum. So they're seeing the triangulation. That's what I heard. That's uh, it's interesting. So that's what I think. I think it's 50-50, but it's not all of our fault. Mm. And for you, you know, you've done incredibly well in your career and have had created a lot of opportunities to, number one, go to amazing academic institutions. Number two, work at great, um, you know, private sector organizations. And then number three, move up within those organizations. Do you feel like you've had to build any specific muscles or skills as yeah. someone from asian descent that you would uh, recommend some of the listeners consider i think a couple of things one's the cultivate mentors i have phenomenal bosses uh and mm. leaders uh at my organization here uh and at mckinsey uh, and at the gates so i had phenomenal people that really championed me white champions who just like mm. understood it they get it and they were saying we'll help I would say the second thing was to build a hardening, a, a skill set to navigate North America. It's okay to engage in conflict. It's okay mm -hmm. to ask for a bigger piece of the pie. It's okay. And that's something I had to deprogram for a while. Because mm -hmm. uh, parents would give you the opposite advice. Keep your head down, totally. stay quiet. Uh, and I would say the third thing is just keep an eye on change. It's just like things are always changing. 
Like you and I know people who are extremely wealthy, even though back in high school they were total losers, quote unquote. <laughs> I know it just is crazy how much the world. So just keep in eye, like there's no real clear career path. And yeah. I think that's sort of, uh, uh, I think keep an eye on where things are going and staying ahead of it. Right. And then even on that point, any advice you'd give to somebody on when they should make a career change, right? Leaving a company, going back to school, what have kind of been some of the key criteria that you feel like you've, you've stuck to that have proven helpful for you to make some of the leaps that you've made in your career? Yeah, so it's it's when I realized that there's less and less resources uh, be allocated to your team or to your yeah. your team, and uh, and that there's less and less value to candidates if there's a rat race. I was at the mm -hmm. Gates Foundation, so there was a program officer role opening. Uh, so I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, it's like I would say mid level, junior level role. Uh, just cut, you know, like maybe you know four years out of business school or whatever. Uh, we got like hundreds of applications. And including people with like decades of experience at senior levels of USAID. And when I saw that, I said, okay, this is not a great job market if I want to stay in this field. Mm. Yeah. That's when I would think of pivot. It was the same thing in war crime prosecution, just like these, there's less resources going to these tribunals and more and more applicants and such. I just realized mm -hmm. this isn't uh, the right sector right now. Yeah. This is for, uh, so I have to think about pivoting. Mm. So if yeah, I was in the yeah, if I was in the tech sector and you're seeing that your, your startup struggling to generate revenue and that da, 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 that's maybe not a bad time to think about exit. Mm -hmm. Great advice. So Gen AI as of right now, too a little too hypey. Feels very bubbly <laughs> right now. Feels very bubbly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, awesome, Tom. Thanks so much. I know we could have had another hour of conversation. Uh, I know we just skimmed the surface, but this is a lot of fun. Um, where should people find or follow you on the internet? What, what uh, LinkedIn. Yeah. I love uh, LinkedIn. Uh, no politics, and uh, I'm always quite responsive on LinkedIn. Yeah, and you can also learn more about the Asian Canadian Venture Collective at ac-vc.ca. And Tom, exactly. you have events in uh, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal. Is that right? That's right. And we're looking. And we're going to be changing things up in the fall. So uh, I'm huddling okay. with a few folks, and thinking, what do we do? Thanks so much, Tom. Have a great rest of your trip in Toronto. And next time we will meet up for Kimchi Chigae. I would love that, I'll Justin. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Tom. All the best. Take care. Okay, just have to stop recording. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your family and friends, leave me a review on iTunes, or drop me a note on our website, asiantechleaders.com. I really appreciate having each of you as a listener and sharing your valuable time with me. Be well, stay healthy, and follow your heart. See you soon.